0: Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. In acts chapter nine we we see the conversion of probably the greatest New Testament believer uh, recorded in Scripture, certainly, the greatest church leader in the history of the Bible. Uh, This this person, of course, it is the Apostle Paul. He's Saul here. He will become the Apostle Paul. But he was used by God to write almost half uh, of the New Testament. Uh, He was used by God to start churches uh, all across the known world. And in the books of the Bible, we have from the Apostle Paul, we have some of the greatest theology, the greatest teachings of God uh, in the New Testament. But before we see his conversion, before we see him saved by grace and becoming the Apostle Paul, we see the Spirit of God moving in his heart and moving in his life. And this, this moving of the Spirit of God completely transforms him. He goes from being the biggest persecutor of the church a man who prided himself on hunting down believers. And, of course, he had persecuted them in Jerusalem, but as they spread outward from Jerusalem and the gospel continued to spread, he goes out as well trying to head off the spread of the gospel to arrest and and throw into jail or maybe even have stoned to death, like he did Stephen, believers to try to stop the spread of the gospel. He is a huge persecutor of the church. And he goes from being the church's biggest opponent to being the greatest champion of the church. And this, this story uh, of his conversion, it shows us some characteristics of a life that is transformed by God. See, Saul, he, he starts out, we, we meet him in Scripture, and he is a, a Pharisee. He is an enemy of Christ. He is an enemy of the church. Now, the Pharisees were a very religious uh, organization. Now, they, they were very legalistic in the things they said, the things they did, the things they taught. They uh, had come up with hundreds and hundreds of extra-biblical rules that you had to follow to prove your worthiness and to prove your righteousness before God, but mainly to prove your righteousness before men. And Paul was an incredible Pharisee. He was very religious. Now, the Pharisees, they, they focused on rules instead of focusing on a relationship with God. And in Philippians 3, this is what Paul says about himself before his salvation. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as concerning the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, Persecuting the church and concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now he puts a, a big caveat there. He says, Righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. Now he knows he, he wasn't righteous. He wasn't blameless at all, but according to the laws and the rules of the Pharisees, on the outside of the, his life, looking in, he looked like a very religious, a very righteous man. Now he prided himself in following rules. He prided himself on appearing blameless. He was very self-righteous. He was a and as a as a Pharisee. He dedicated himself to stopping the spread of the gospel, to stopping the church. Look what he says again about himself in Galatians chapter 1. He says, For I have heard, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and progressed in Judaism above many of my equals in my own heritage, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my father. So Paul even later on in his life after he's the apostle Paul and after he's he's really come to a great relationship with God, he says, "Look, my former life, I dedicated myself to destroying Christ, to destroying the church, and I was better at it than anybody else. I was the greatest persecutor of the church that they had ever seen." So what changed in Saul's life to transform him from this proud arrogant, self-righteous persecutor of the church to a, a humble, forgiving champion of the church of God. Well, the thing that transformed him is the, the only thing that can transform anyone, and that's faith. You know, faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, see, true faith changes you. It changes how you act. It changes how you live. It changes how you treat people. It changes how you serve others. See, faith brings transformation on the inside that is seen on the outside where religion changes the outside to hide how wicked the inside is. We can see Jesus when he talked to the Pharisees. He told the Pharisees, he says, look, on the outside you look good. You fast, you pray, you tithe, you look good, you act good. You look like people think a true, righteous person should look. But inside, you're filthy. Inside, you're, you're dead men's bones. See, they focused on changing the outside leaving the inside alone. True faith, true relationship with Jesus Christ, it changes your inside that eventually is seen on the outside. Faith brings transformation that changes how you look and changes your transformation on the outside in your word and deed. And see, Saul is proof that people can change, that people can be transformed, but only one thing can do it. You know, psychology can't do it. Education can't do it. Economics can't do it. Nothing can truly change a person except faith in God. See, no outside force can change a man because our problem isn't an outside problem. Our problem is an inside problem. Our problem is we have a wicked, vile, rebellious, deceitful heart. See, Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is more deceitful than all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? See, our problem is a heart problem. Our heart's wicked. Our heart's deceitful. And our heart needs to be changed. And that only happens through transformation, which true transformation isn't just changing your behavior. You can change your behavior for a little while. But if your heart's not changed, you're going to go back to what you used to be before. True transformation only happens by becoming a completely new creature. See, 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So in Acts chapter 9, yes, we see the conversion of the Apostle Paul. We see the Holy Spirit working on his heart. We see him accept Christ as a Savior. But we see more than that. We see what, trans- what transformed him from, the apostle, from Saul, the persecutor, to the Apostle Paul. So let's look in uh, uh, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse number 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slant slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went up to the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, ...to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now, first thing we notice here is how Jesus views persecution against the church. Saul has received letters from the high priest. He's got permission from the high priest, from the religious elite, to go to Damascus. It's kind of north of Jerusalem. He's going to go up there and he goes, If I find anybody, no matter if it's a man or a woman or child, if I find anybody... That's a follower of this Jesus guy. I'm going to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem for them to stand trial as a heretic. And we know what happens to people who are convicted of heresy. They are crucified or they are stoned to death. So he is bringing people back to Jerusalem with a death sentence all because they worship Jesus. And then on the way, suddenly a bright light shines about him. He's knocked off of his horse and a voice from heaven, says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He doesn't even say, why are you persecuting my church or my people? He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Jesus doesn't view the church as as an it. He doesn't view the church as a building. He sees the church as he sees himself. He is so united to the church that he says, the church of God and, and myself were the same. So when you persecute the church, you're persecuting Christ. Hey, you know what that translates into as a believer? When you forsake the church, you're forsaking Christ. When you ignore the church, you're ignoring Christ. When you don't think the church is very important, you don't think Christ is very important. So that's not what he's saying. Yes, it is. He says, whatever you do to the church, however you feel about the church, that's how you feel about me. There is no separation between the love of Jesus and his commitment to the church. See, Jesus calls the church his bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And Jesus says, You can't love me and hate my bride. Now, if if someone were to come up to me, say, Sean, man, I sure do love you. I think you're the, the best guy I've ever met. You're so handsome, so talented, so strong. I'd say, Well, I know, you know, of course. You're awesome but I hate your wife. Can't stand her. Starts bad-mouthing her and calling her names and saying, to, you know what I would say? Well, I understand, man. I mean, she didn't know. I wouldn't. Like, you, you, you can't be my friend and love me and hate my wife. Now, you can hate my mother-in-law all you want to. I'll join in on that one. But me and my wife, we're, we're one. See, the Bible says when, when a man and woman get married, they become one flesh. And look, I learned this the hard way as a dumb, young, married guy. Me and April got married. She was 18, I was 20. And uh, I remember my, my, nobody in my family wanted us to get married. They didn't, they didn't like April. Uh, they thought all we did was fight. And we did fight a lot as Stupid teenagers, but you know, how many of y'all, when you were young, dumb teenagers, didn't fight with each other? Everybody did. So, pfft. well, we fought too much. They didn't. They didn't want us to get married. And uh, so, when we did, if you look at our wedding pictures, uh, you know, my side of the family is, you know, very stoic-looking, angry-looking, sad-looking. It's like a funeral. April's side's happy, but I'm happy now. It has changed. They like her more than they like me now. That's true. April every year goes on a vacation with my mom. I've never been on a vacation with my mom. I'm not even invited to go on vacation with my mom. Now, she has said, you can come down one day and drop April off for vacation, but you can't stay. You can have lunch with us and go home. She likes her better. She called me one day a couple weeks ago. My brother, of course, you know, he just had surgery and he had his legs amputated. And one of them uh, wasn't healing very well. And my mom, you know, she was freaking out because she's just super worried about him. And she calls me. Uh, early in the morning like 6 30 in the morning I was already up but she calls me and I'm talking to her and she's like I just need someone to calm me down and I, I tried my best and finally she goes you stink at this give me April and so April was able to calm her down so but when we first got married they didn't like her and I remember we, we'd been married probably about two months and my mom called me and said hey uh, we're all going to go bowling together as a family and I'm like, oh great, where we go? We're gonna go meet at the bowling alley, you know, Friday, six o'clock. I don't know the exact details. She goes, my well, whole family's gonna be there. Don't bring April, because she didn't consider her family yet. Now, as a loving, kind husband, I said, no. If you don't accept my wife, you don't accept me. No, as a as a young idiot, I said, okay. So I went and I told April, I said they don't want you there. We had one of the biggest fights of our entire life. And I'm surprised we made it through that. But now I've learned, no, no, no. If you don't want my wife, you don't get me. You can't love me and hate her. You can't be kind to me and misread her because misread her, you're doing that. And that's what Jesus says. Jesus says, you can't love me and hate my bride. You can't love me and be mean to my bride. You can't love me and reject my bride. You either accept my bride, the church, or you don't accept anything. So we can't love Jesus and avoid spending time with his church. We can't love Jesus and avoid worshiping with his church. Look, there are too many believers who say they love Jesus, but they don't spend any time with his bride. They avoid his bride. And look, today, it's real easy because you can say, well, you know, well, we, don't need to, we don't need to go to church to worship anymore because we have, you know, so many resources online. We can worship anywhere. I can be uh, worshiping with a church in California, and I'm still getting the same worship service, sitting in my living room, watching it. And look, COVID did not help because we all got used to watching church in our living room. I even did, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed, you know, recording our message beforehand and then sitting at home on Sunday morning in my PJs eating bacon and and mashed, not mashed potatoes, bacon and pancakes. That's gross, bacon and mashed potatoes. But eating breakfast, watching myself preach, man, it it was enjoyable. But here's the thing. It hurts us not being together. And so Jesus says, when you persecute my church, you're persecuting me. When you forsake the assembly of my church, you're forsaking meeting with me. When you ignore my church, you're ignoring me. So to love Jesus, we have to be a part of his church, have to be faithful to his church, have to serve his church, have to contribute to his church. You know, we live in a, a, a culture of instant gratification that teaches us you can get whatever you want with very little involvement. You know, we live in a fast-food society. You know, there's even in Vegas, there's a drive through wedding chapel. You don't even got to step out and, and go to a, to a preacher or go to a church. You can just drive through like you do at McDonald's and get married right in your car. That kind of brings down the, the, the really, the value of marriage But we just think, man, I don't got to get involved, I can just do anything. And look, I know a lot of people, they don't want to come to church because they say, man, the church is full of hypocrites. No, it's not. We have plenty of room for more of them. But look, even if the church was full of hypocrites, Jesus loved those hypocrites. He died for those hypocrites. He rose again to redeem those hypocrites, and he identifies with those hypocrites. So if they're good enough for him, why aren't they good enough for you? All right, that's a rabbit trail that I'm going to hit back on in a little bit. But let's keep going. So Acts chapter 9, look at verse number 5. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecuted. Again, he's not persecuting Jesus. He's persecuting the church. But I'm Jesus, whom thou persecuted. persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Now, a prick here, uh, really, it's another word for prick is goad. It's like, it's a a sharp stick they would use uh, while plowing with oxen. Another word for it is a cattle prod. Now, today we think of a cattle prod as like the electric thing where you can shock a cow to get it to do stuff, or really... Mess up your friends because it can go way too high voltage. But what they would do is they would they would put these these sharp sticks on the the plow, or the harness of the of the oxen while they're plowing to keep them straight. If they turned one way, it would stick them. If they turned another the way, it stick them. So it was designed to make sure they went straight. Now the oxen could kick against these things, but all it did was hurt them. Just kept sticking them and sticking them and sticking them. And so Saul here, Jesus saying, why are you kicking against the goads or the pricks that I'm putting in your life? Now, what was Saul, what was prodding Saul? What was God using to goad him, to go the direction God wanted? Well, I think really one thing was the death of Stephen. Again, he was there as Stephen died. He saw, he heard Stephen's passion of preaching the gospel, even knowing what was going to happen. He saw Stephen's face as he's being stoned to death and he looks into heaven and sees Jesus Christ and he saw the glory on his face. He saw the forgiveness of Stephen. and He says, God, forgive the very people who are killing me. That bothered him. How, how could someone act like that? The way Stephen died made no sense to him. And these were bothering Saul. They were wounding him, so he's kicking against him. He's becoming more and more violent. Instead of going to someone and asking questions and trying to talk about it, he just gets more and more violent and says, Well, if that's how they're going to be, I'm just going to work harder to destroy the church. And look at verse number 7. And the men journeying with him... Stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. See, so these others around him, they, they hear Jesus speaking, but they don't see anything. They didn't even see the bright light. They're not knocked off their horses, they're not blinded by the light. And so they're just walking down the road, traveling together. All of a sudden, Saul falls down and starts talking to a voice they can't see. So when God, sometimes when God speaks to you, other people don't really understand what's going on they don't experience the same thing that you experience and so when the spirit's moving and you hear the voice of god in the things that god's working in your life now looks like in verse number 8 <clears throat> and Saul arose from the earth with his eyes and when his eyes were open he saw no man but they led him by the hands and brought him unto Damascus so Saul is blind from this experience with god and he was there 3 days without sight and neither did he eat Nor drink. Now, this is an amazing picture of what an encounter with God does to somebody. See, mighty Saul, the persecutor of the church, is blind and humbled and kneeling, waiting on God. See, Saul thought he saw things clearly. He thought he understood Jesus was a heretic, his people are cult followers, and we got to crush this because it's hurting the true Messiah coming later, the true religion, which is Judaism, and following all their laws. And so he thought he saw everything clearly, but now he's blind and being led by the hand. Saul seized others, and now he seized himself by Jesus Christ. Saul broke others, and now he is broken himself. Even in his name, Saul, in the Hebrew, means desired. It's the the name of the first king of Israel. This was a strong Jewish name. He later changes his name to Paul, which means small. So mighty Saul has now become little tiny Paul. Look at verse number 10. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord came to a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord told him, uh, said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And has seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, "Lord, I have heard by many of this man uh, how he how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem, and here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call thy name." But the Lord said unto him, "Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear witness." of my name to the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now Ananias, of course, he is a believer at Damascus. He's a child of God, but again, he's not an apostle. God doesn't come to Peter, say, Peter, go down and talk to Saul. He doesn't come to John and say, John, Go talk to Saul. Doesn't come to Matthew. Says, Matthew, go down and talk. Doesn't go to any of the apostles. Goes to a, a layman in the church at Damascus and says, hey, I need, a, need you to do something. There's this guy, Saul of Tarshish, down there. I need you to go and witness to him. And look, Ananias, rightfully so, has a few questions. He knows who Saul is. He goes, well, uh, Saul, Saul of Tarsus. I heard of that guy. He he killed Stephen up in Jerusalem. He persecuted the church in Jerusalem so much they had to scatter. He's got letters from the high priest that he can arrest anyone who calls you by their name who is a say, believer. He can take any one of them back to Jerusalem to be put on trial and stoned. And Lord, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I'm a believer. Which means if I go to him, he can have me arrested and taken to Jerusalem and killed. It'd be like, put yourself back in 2002. God comes to you and says, hey, there's this guy, he just got into America, he works at the 7-Eleven, his name is Osama Bin Laden. I want you to go witness to him and invite him to church and let him live with you. How many of y'all would be like, I'm sorry, what? Are you sure? Lord, I'm going I'm I'm to take a little nap, maybe I ate something I shouldn't have last night and make sure you're talking to me because I don't think I got what you said right. And that's what Anani- Ananias is saying, he goes, Lord, this guy's dangerous, this guy's evil. Are you sure? And God says, yeah, I'm sure. And to Ananias' credit, he goes. He doesn't question anymore. He just goes. Now look at verse number 17. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and put his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the, the way... As thou camest, hast sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he received meat, he was strengthened. Then Saul was certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. Now, this, this conversion story gives us six characteristics of a life that is truly transformed by the gospel a life that is truly changed because of their relationship with God. Here's the first one. Number one, a life that is truly changed by the gospel is a life that has faith in the Savior. Saul didn't just believe in his head that Jesus died for his sins. He believed in his heart. And he tells us in Romans, he says, If thou believe in thine heart... That God has raised him to death. dead. Thou confess of thy mouth and believe in thine heart that God has raised the thou shalt be saved. So Saul, he didn't just, you know, think, well, maybe Jesus did rise from the grave, maybe Jesus did die for my sins. He truly believed it in his heart. He had faith in Jesus as the true Messiah, as the creator of everything, and the true Lamb of God. He believed by faith. That Jesus came to earth as God in the flesh, lived a perfect sinless life, died on the cross, a death he did not have to die, and when he died, he absorbed the wrath of God for my sin and your sin and Saul's sin, and then he rose again to prove he was God and to redeem us with God the Father. He believed that by faith. Now, a lot of people believe that Paul, uh, or Saul right here, but Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews gives us an incredible definition of faith. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is believing with your heart that Jesus lived a perfect life you could have never lived, died a death you should have died to pay a debt you owed that you never could have paid, and rose again to save you and redeem you to God the Father. Now, there's no concrete way to prove it, but the hope of salvation is the greatest hope that we have. Paul also said in Hebrews, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And pleasing God through faith, of course, it's faith for salvation. But then it's faith in God that leads to transformation. And it only comes through faith in the risen Savior. Second thing we noticed, Connor, you want to go to the second point I got there, buddy? Connor? Second point is passion for prayer. Keep going. There we go. You were way behind, dude. I'm going to have to take your phone on Sundays. Passion for prayer. Look, look at what Paul is doing when Ananias is told to go see him. Look at verse number 11. It says, Arise and go to the street which is called Straight, inquire of the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarshish. For behold, he what? He prayeth. Go find Saul, he's going to be praying. For three days, Paul had been praying to God. For three days, while blind, he prayed. And look, he, he was very good at prayer praying before, but his prayers... Have changed. Before, his prayers were the self-righteous prayers of a Pharisee. Look at how Jesus said Pharisees prayed in Luke chapter 11. Luke, I mean Luke chapter 18. He says, the Pharisee stood and prayed these things about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and tithe of all that I earn. That is a very self-righteous prayer. That is, God, you are so lucky to have me on your team. I don't know what you'd do if you didn't have me. Lord, I'm the greatest thing that ever happened to you. You are so good that you are so lucky that I am so good. I'm not like these other wicked people. That is how Paul used to pray. Very self-righteous, very publicly, so that people saw him and thought highly of him. Now, he's not praying that prayer. He's praying the prayer of a broken man. He is humble before God. He is confessing his sin. He is admitting his unworthiness and pleading for forgiveness that only God can give. Now, here's what that tells us. For the believer, prayer is vital to true transformation. Your prayer life with God Is just as important to your spiritual life as breathing is to your physical life. How many of y'all think you can go one day without breathing? Okay, how many can go five minutes without breathing? No, you're gonna die. We need oxygen to survive. We need prayer to survive and to grow in our spiritual walk. That's why we've been doing the year of prayer. We've given you every, everything we can possibly... I've done everything I can to try to get you to pray, besides come to your house, hold a gun to your head and say, you better start praying, buddy. And I'm not going to do that because I just don't have time. I'm too busy trying to make myself pray. But we... Prayer... Is vital. You will never be truly transformed by God unless you are praying to God every single day. M- Bible says morning, noon, and night. Paul said, pray without ceasing. Just always be in a constant attitude of prayer. We will not be transformed until we live a life dedicated to prayer, until prayer becomes natural to us. Third thing we notice about what transformed Paul was he was faithful in service. Faithfulness in service. Look back at verse number six. And he said, who art thou, Lord? Uh, And I am Jesus, and I persecut. Verse six. And trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what will you have me to do? What will you have me to do? Now look, that's a strange question to ask when you've just been blinded by some huge light, knocked off your horse, and a voice out of nowhere starts talking to you. My first question wouldn't be, Lord, what would you have me to do? My first question would be, Oh my God, what's happening? Someone get me to a mental hospital, I'm having a breakdown, I don't know what's going on. Some, Something's weird. But Saul, he's knocked off his horse, he's blind, he's hearing God, he goes, God, what do you want me to do? His first response, was to ask God, How can I serve you? Being transformed by the gospel, it brings an eagerness to serve God, to build his kingdom. Look, after Saul is saved, he immediately starts preaching the gospel. Look at verse number 20. It says, "In straightway, he preached Christ in the synagogues. That he is the Son of God. Look, he's so eager to serve. He's a, he, it's, it's a pleasure for him to serve God. He is going to the Look, he's not like he's preaching the gospel in a church. He's going to the very places that he used to go and bash Jesus and rail against the church. He's going to the synagogue and saying, hey, I was wrong. Let me tell you who Jesus really is. He was eager to serve God. And if you, don't want to, if you don't have a desire to serve God, then you're not being transformed by your relationship with God. Fourth thing we noticed that transformed Paul was number four. He had a filling of the Spirit. A filling of the Spirit. Now, Saul received the Holy Spirit of God at salvation, like everyone else does at salvation. But he needed to be filled with the Spirit Like all of us need to be filled with the Spirit. So what's the difference? Receiving the Spirit at salvation means that the Holy Spirit of God moves into your heart and He indwells you and He lives inside of you. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit moves in, but He's competing with your old heart, your old nature. He's competing with your selfish desires, your interests, what you want to do. Being filled with the Spirit means that the Spirit's not just indwelling you, but the Spirit is leading you. The Spirit is controlling you. It means that the Holy Spirit is the boss. His desires take precedence over your desires. His will is more important than His your will the presence of the holy spirit at salvation brings can bring the filling of the holy spirit but that leads to power from the spirit and the fruit of the spirit look you know we see the fruit of the spirit in ephesians chapter 5 fruit of the spirits love joy peace long suffering gentleness meekness you know against sons there's, there's no law and we still like to think of the fruit of the spirit as like a checklist we have to have i've got to have love i've got to have joy i've got to have peace i got i've got to have all these things and when i have all those things then i'll have the fruit of the spirit The fruit is not grown by trying real hard. The fruit is grown because we are rooted in the right thing. We are rooted in a relationship with God. We are fed by Him. And we can only produce the fruit of the Spirit if we're being controlled by the Spirit, but we get by being filled by the Spirit. So Paul had the fill in the Spirit. Fifth thing we notice is he had fellowship with the saints. Look at verse 19. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then Saul uh, then was Saul certain days with the disciples, which were at Damascus. A transformed life is a life that loves Jesus and desires to be in fellowship with Him and His children. We are commanded to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. See, fellowship with other believers it brings us joy, it brings us comfort. It brings us encouragement. It gives us accountability. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. We need each other. Transform people, hunger and thirst for fellowship with other believers. John MacArthur said the Christian life is a tender shoot that can exist fruitfully only in an atmosphere of holiness. Here's the thing. How many of you... Stand before God as righteous because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. How many of y'all are righteous before God? If you're saved, please put your hand up. How many of you are righteous before God today because of what Jesus did? Great. How many of y'all are living a truly righteous life? God said, be holy because I'm holy. How many of y'all, not in God's eyes, but how many of you are truly as holy as Jesus? Good. Thank you for not lying. None of us are. But you know what's, what makes you want to live holier and gives you accountability and helps you see? the? It's fellowship with other believers. If you A man left to himself, I don't care how long he's been saved, a man left to himself is going to end up living a wicked life. We have to have each other. We get strength and encouragement and accountability and correction from each other. You will never be transformed by yourself. Sixth thing we notice, and last thing we notice here, a transformed life not only has fellowship, desires fellowship with things, but a transformed life has a zeal for sharing. Look at verse twenty. And straightway he reached Christ in synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, "Is this not him that destroyed?" them which called on his name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound to the chief priest. Saul didn't go away to Bible college. Saul didn't go through a witnessing course. He got saved, got baptized, and immediately stood up and said, hey, I was wrong. Let me tell you what the truth is about Jesus. Let me tell you what I've experienced in my relationship with God. And he does it in a place where he used to criticize Jesus and his followers. See, transformed people can't stop talking about the one that transformed them. And a lot of people, they fear sharing their faith. And look, it's understandable. We are in a very anti-Christian culture. But none of us are in threat of being stoned to death for our fellowship and our relationship with Jesus. Saul didn't feel didn't fear people thinking bad about him. He didn't fear being stoned for speaking about Jesus. He feared not sharing his faith in God. He feared not sharing the truth of salvation with everybody he could. So what do we fear? People laughing at us? People avoiding you because you're trying to show the truth to them? Or do we fear not getting the gospel to everybody we can? See, in the story of Saul's conversion. We see a lot of great truths. Look, we see Ananias led by the Spirit of God and willing to obey even in a dangerous situation, even when it didn't make sense. We see Saul humbling himself before God for salvation. But more than that, we see a change that the gospel brings into a life of someone who has surrendered to him. Saul is transformed. He is changed from an arrogant, self-righteous, enemy of God to a humble, eager servant of God. If Saul can be transformed by God, so can we. So if you're here and you're still struggling, being changed, maybe we're putting faith in the wrong things. Maybe if, if, you faith, if your faith is in Jesus alone, but you're still struggling, with, but here's the thing. I never am bothered by believers who struggle With sin. Because guess what? We all do. I'm bothered by those who claim to be believers and they don't care that they have sin. It doesn't bother them at all. They can live their life how they want to live and I'm saved by grace and my sins are forgiven so I can do what I want to do. That type of believer bothers me. The believer that's like, I can't believe, I did it again. I told God I never would, I did it again. Or I messed up even worse this time. Oh, God, I, I can't believe I did that. I, and the ones that struggle, man, they're my kind of people, because guess what? I struggle too. And if you're sitting here saying, I don't struggle with sin. I haven't sinned in 50 years. All right, Pharisee. need to change like Paul changed. You need to meet the true Jesus, all right? And I'm not trying to criticize you. I'm trying to warn you, number one. But maybe you're still struggling with the same thing. You say, I just can't seem to change we need to make sure that we are not only saved by grace through faith, but we're walking by faith. We're allowing God to change us. We're, we're fellowshipping with his, with his family. We're loving his church. We're being filled with the Spirit so we can be changed for his glory. If Saul can become Paul, we can become incredible things for God. Let's pray, Heavenly Father, we do Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.